please turn now to that passage that we already read from the scriptures of the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Second Chronicles chapter 26. And the text for the sermon this morning comes from the 18th verse. Second Chronicles 26 verse 18, where we read these words. It appertaineth not unto thee, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord. It appertaineth not unto thee. What I'd like to do this morning, because this passage lends itself so well to this, is to walk through the context, because it is presented to us as a narrative. This is one of the historical books of the Scripture, And the account here of King Isaiah and his sin is spelled out for us plainly and clearly. One thing that I want to start with is how he is described here in the opening of this chapter, the 26th chapter of 2 Chronicles. And it says that this king, in verse 4, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How many times when we read through the historical books, whether it's in Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, how often do we read of kings where it introduces them with the words that they did not do right, that they did not do well, that they were bad kings? And it's really quite a sad story, isn't it? When we read through the history of Israel and Judah and see king after king after king, that did not seek the Lord and did not want to rule according to the word of God, but even tempted the people away from God to sin. Here are one of those, I think, more rare cases where we see that the king was one who did right in the sight of the Lord. He did right according to all that his father Amaziah did. And there are many remarkable things about this king, King Isaiah, that we read about for a great part of this passage that commends him. We read that the Lord gave him victory over battles, that he had much strength, he had large armies. We even read that there were cunning men, clever men, that invented these machines of war. As we read in verse 15, and he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the boards to shoot arrows and break stones with all. So the king recognized genius in his servants, and he had them to build these innovative machines. We also see that the king had great honor throughout the land. That in fact, we read in verse 8 that his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt. We also see that the king prospered, that he had much wealth. And one interesting note, and remember that the scripture doesn't record things by accident. Everything is in here for a reason. I think it's quite interesting that in verse 10, we read about this king that he loved husbandry. Isn't that interesting? What of the king of Judah or of Israel do you read something about like that? He enjoyed a pastoral setting. He enjoyed the raising of animals and 
of props for food, not that he did these things directly himself, but he enjoyed those things. He delighted in them. And he had many husbandmen, we are told, who were vine dressers and who did these things. So he, even as a king, did not look at his reign in such a way as that that consumed him, that he couldn't also enjoy these things of a more pastoral and quiet setting. And I think that's a remarkable note here by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. And so, as we say, this was a king that did right in the sight of the Lord. That was in verse 4. Look as we read in verse 5. It says that he also sought God in the days of Zechariah. And then it goes on to say that as long as he sought the Lord, it says that God made him to prosper. As long as the king sought the Lord, the Lord prospered him. But then what happens? And we see this this transition at the end of verse 15 going into verse 16. It says that the king was marvelously helped till he was strong. And then in verse 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see that we are given to the same thing, that we are no better than this king. When the Lord prospers our way, gives us success, gives us wealth, gives us honor, we are given to this temptation to think, uh, you know, the Lord did these things for me, but if it wasn't for my uh, being so diligent... I wouldn't have been as successful. If it wasn't for uh, my work and what I did, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish these things. And so we forget. We forget that it's the Lord that prospers our way. That it's thanks to the Lord for all these good things that we have. If there's any success, if there's any honor, if there's any wealth that we enjoy in this life, It comes from the Lord, not from ourselves, in and of ourselves. Now, of course, we are called not to be slothful and lazy. We are called to be diligent, to work hard. But all those things will amount to nothing unless the Lord blesses our labors. Those who build a house, build it in vain unless the Lord builds that house. And so I'm afraid that it was this case with this king that his heart was lifted up, lifted up. That indicates a a root of pride, that he forgot, he forgot to be grateful to the Lord. And he began to think of himself in his pride as being responsible for all these good things that he enjoyed. And whenever there is pride, As the text says here in verse 16, we are led then to destruction. For pride comes before the fall, as it says in the scripture. And there's no other sin like pride that will quickly turn your blessing from the Lord to a cursing. And so what do we read next in this narrative? We read that the king transgressed against the Lord his God. This is the first time in this passage that we see anything like this about this king. But now that his heart has been lifted up, 
he has transgressed against the Lord his God. And what was his transgression? Well, we are told expressly here in the word of God, his transgression was that as a king, he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. That was his transgression. And also, think about this, as we shall see shortly, Lord willing. He actually never gets to doing the thing itself to offer incense unto the Lord. He doesn't get that far. He's stopped by the priests. And yet still, this is called by the Holy Word of God, a transgression. He has sinned. He has sinned already just by going into the temple to offer incense, even before he offers it. He has transgressed. He has sinned before the Lord. And look what happens in this account. It's really quite dramatic. In verse 17, And Azariah, who was the chief priest, went in after the king, as the king goes into the temple to offer this incense unto the Lord. And with the priest, with Azariah, there were 80 priests of the Lord that followed after. Can you picture this? The king going into the temple of the Lord and 80 priests with the chief priests following in after him. And these men, these priests, we are told in this verse, verse 17, are valiant men. That is, they are courageous men. They are strong. These priests were not wimps. In fact, there are places in the scripture where we see that the Levites were engaged in warfare. These were valiant men, 80 men, priests who were consecrated unto the Lord that went in after the king into the temple. And then we read in verse 18 that these priests withstood Isaiah the king and said unto him, It does not appertain unto you, king Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, those that are consecrated to burn incense. For the king was not consecrated to burn incense, the priests were. Go out of the sanctuary, they say. They implore the king, for thou hast trespassed. You are a trespasser here in the temple of God. You don't belong here as the king. Get out of here. They say this as if to indicate that, that the king is under some danger, some hazard in being there. And then they add, as if these reasons were not weighty enough, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Neither shall it be for your honor, O king, to do this thing. Get out of here. But how does the king respond? How does the king respond to this admonishment from the priests? We read in verse 19. Then Isaiah was wroth. He was angry and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. You see, the king was standing there at the altar of incense with a censer in his hand. He was ready to go. He was ready to burn the incense unto the Lord. And the priests rush in after him, admonish him. And rather than being humble, for the king knew of the law pertaining to the Levites and the priests and the offering of the incense, rather than being humbled, the king becomes angry. <laughs> Such is the nature of our sin. It's a great irony, isn't it? That when we are admonished, when someone reveals to us our sin, rather than being humble, we're angry with them. 
even though they are right in telling us of our sin. And so was the response of this king. He was angry with them. He was angry that they interrupted him. He was angry that they stopped him in his purpose to offer this incense unto the Lord. And then what happens? I think it's really interesting how the form in which is expressed here in verse 19. For it says, without any prior introduction to the idea of leprosy, it says the leprosy even rose up in his forehead, as if to say that we already spoke about leprosy, we already knew about it, or perhaps the reader is someone who's already familiar with this account. But at the least, it is presented in a dramatic form. For we don't know anything about the leprosy until it says the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests. It seems to indicate a sudden and a very quick judgment from the Lord that while they stood there, while the king was angry at the priests, suddenly he became a leper and the leprosy even rose up in his forehead. That is, it was visible to the priest. They could see it in his face. And when it says that it even rose up in his forehead, the indication is that he was probably already covered with leprosy. His whole body was probably covered with leprosy, for it rose up even in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. Verse 20, And Azariah the chief priests and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. So it rose up in his face, and now his forehead or his face is covered in leprosy. And so now... The priests thrust him out from thence. And listen to this note. It says, Yea, himself, that is the king, hasted also to go out, because the Lord has smitten him. So there was a change. The king, though he was angry with the priests, how dare you stop the king from offering incense unto the Lord? But now, as he is smitten of the Lord, we are told, with this leprosy, The king himself realizes the judgment that is upon him, and he hastily gets out of the temple. He runs out of there. And so the passage ends on a very sad note that the king was never healed from this leprosy. We read in verse 21, And Isaiah the king was a leper unto the day of his death. Till the day he died, he had this leprosy. And he lived in a free house that is uh, a dwelling that is apart or separated from all the society of men, for he was a leper. And ironically, as king, when he tried to usurp the place of the priest, in doing so, he lost his function as a king. Because now he was a leper, and he could not operate anymore as a king, but he had to live apart from all the rest. And so we read that Jotham, his son, took his place. Even while King Uzziah was still alive, but because he was a leper, his son took his place over the king's house, we read in verse 21, judging the people of the land. And not only this, but this shame, this ignominy, 
of King Isaiah even extends to him in his grave. For we read in verse 23 that Isaiah slept with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the burial which belonged to the kings, for they said, he is a leper. In other words, though he was buried in that field which belonged to the kings, because he was a leper, he was separated from the other sepulchers of the other kings or from being buried close to the other kings, for you see, he was a leper. And so, the shame of King Uzziah from this one action remained with him until his death, and the shame went with him to the grave. And so, having given, I hope, uh, an idea of the context of the passage, let's look more closely at this text in verse 18. It appertaineth not unto thee, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord. And what I want to do is look at these three arguments that the priest use in persuading or trying to persuade the king to repent, to turn away from his purpose to offer incense unto the Lord. And I'd like to use these as the heads of this sermon. So first... Consider this argument of the priest, that it does not appertain to the king, but rather, it does appertain to the priests. It does belong to the priests to burn incense unto the Lord, for they are the ones that are consecrated to burn incense, not the king. Secondly, let's look at this argument where they say, go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. You, O king, are a trespasser. You don't belong here in the temple here next to the altar of incense. It's not your place. And in a similar fashion in verse 16, we are told that the king transgressed against the Lord his God. And so the king has transgressed and he has trespassed. And that is another reason why it does not appertain or belong to the king to offer incense unto the Lord. And then thirdly, again, as if these reasons were not adequate, the priests offer a third argument and say, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. He will not bring you any honor anyway, King Isaiah, for you to do this thing. So stop and turn away. And so first, our first head, that it appertains not to the king because it does appertain to the priests. Those are the ones who are consecrated to burn incense. As we read in the law of God, in Numbers 16, verse 40, we read that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, so you see the priest must come from the, the line of Aaron, can come near to offer incense before the Lord. We're expressly told even in respect to offering incense. And also in First Chronicles chapter 23, we read, And Aaron was separated that he should sanctify the most holy things, he and his sons forever, to burn incense before the Lord, to minister unto him, and to bless in his name forever. So it's plain from the scripture that it belonged to Aaron and his sons to burn incense before the Lord. And as we read this law from the Old Testament, don't tell yourselves that the principle, the teaching that we have in our text this morning, 
is only for those in the old time. That it's no longer intended for our day. That somehow the New Testament scripture has overturned this principle. Because you see this principle, this teaching, that is, that there are these different spheres, if you will, that are distinct that the Lord God has instituted, and that the authority that he's delegated in those spheres should not be crossed. That principle is a moral one, because it falls under the head of the fifth commandment, because the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, has to do with the authority that God has delegated to men and women. And so, this principle has not ceased, for it is part of the moral law, and thereby it is perpetually binding. Now, there was a theologian, a a well-known Dutch Reformed theologian and statesman, he actually served as prime minister for a time in his country of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, who also developed this doctrine most notably in his famous lectures called Calvinism and Politics, but also in a well-known lecture called Sphere Sovereignty. And we see a quote in our bulletin from Kuiper, but let me just simplify it for you. Kuiper describes it like this. He says that God's original and absolute sovereignty resides only in himself. God does not delegate authority in an absolute sense, to men. But, nonetheless, God was pleased to delegate a limited authority to men. And under his sovereignty, God has ordained certain distinct spheres, as it were, or separate domains or areas of society, where each one of those spheres has a limited authority given by God. Hence the phrase, sphere sovereignty, that in each of these spheres there is a distinct sovereignty, that is, there is an authority, a limited authority, I tell you, given by God to men in each distinct sphere. And so consider, as an example, try to make this a little more concrete, consider God's institutions of the family, the church, and the state. And those, these three institutions of God are distinct God has woven these three together into the fabric of the society of men. And so in the sphere of the family, we see God giving limited authority to parents over children, for example. In the sphere of the church, we see God giving limited authority to the officers of the church, to elders and deacons. In the sphere of the state, we see God giving limited authority to the civil magistrate and to the various governing bodies of the state. And our text here, where we read, it appertaineth not unto thee, teaches us that God would have it that these various spheres of sovereignty are kept distinct. The king is not to usurp the office of the priest, any more than the priest is to play the part of a king. Just because Isaiah was king, and yes, that authority came from the Lord. He was king of Judah. There's no disputing that. It was a rightful authority, 
because it was from the Lord that Isaiah was king of Judah at that time. But here's the point. Just because the Lord God gave King Isaiah authority in that sphere of the state does not mean that thereby, and based on that authority, he has any prerogative whatsoever to exercise authority in another sphere. We have historical examples of this error. Maybe this will make it a little more concrete. And so, it's like two sides of a coin. On one side, you have popery. You have an idea that the head of the church, which is another matter to be discussed at another time, but the Pope, as such, thinks that he also has authority over the nations, though his position is an ecclesiastical one and not a civic one. Flip the coin over on the other side, you have what we call Erastianism, which is just a term taken from a man named Thomas Erastus. This is the flip side of popery, where now we have an authority in the state that claims to have authority also in the church. And we see that, do we not? For example, in our own day, in the British monarchy, there's this expression, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but it is that the king or the queen is called the defender of the faith. And indeed, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, who's currently the queen there, she's understood as being not only the head of the state as queen, but she's also considered the head of the Anglican Church, the state church there in Britain. And I think the, uh, the ironic note of history about this expression, the defender of the faith, is to learn where it came from. Did you know that that was the title that was first given to King Henry VIII? But guess from whom King Henry got this title? And guess why? <laughs> he got it from the Pope, from Leo X. And do you know why he received that title from the Pope? He received it because the king, King Henry of all people, wrote a, a theological critique of Luther that he called the defense of the seven sacraments. And so Henry, yes, the same king that later would depart from the Roman Catholic Church, defending the Roman Catholic teaching of seven sacraments, was rewarded by the Pope as the defender of the faith. And yet, that title still stuck with the British monarchy all the way to this day, to today, though, as we all know, Henry separated from the Roman Catholic Church and from the Pope. And so, as I say, I think that's quite a, an ironic note of history. And so that's an example of a confusion, I assert, a confusion in how God has delegated authority among men between the various distinct spheres of sovereignty, to borrow Kuiper's language. Now, this same principle, we see this, this same principle applying not only to a confusion between the church and the state, but in our day we also see that there's a confusion about the boundaries between the church and the family. One example of this error is what we find in some churches that are even in our own area here in Texas, 
It is a movement, a contemporary movement, which started as a reaction against feminism and may rightly be called a movement of hyper-patriarchalism. And that is in these churches where in the name of counteracting feminism, they go so far in asserting what they consider to be a revival of biblical patriarchy, but they go so far that in their churches, the fathers, not pastors, administer the sacraments of the Lord. And I've seen this firsthand. This is not by a secondhand report. That the fathers, not pastors, will baptize. That the fathers, not pastors, will administer the Lord's Supper. And so I say again with the text, it does not appertain unto thee, O Father, to be usurping the place of the minister in the church of Jesus Christ by administering his sacraments. A father, by virtue of having authority in his own sphere, in his own family, does not thereby have an authority to be exercised in a different sphere, such as in the church. The authority which the Lord delegates to men is limited to the scope of that sphere. In this case, the authority that the Lord gives to fathers is limited to the scope of his own family. Not to any other family, not to the church, though it is admitted that he has authority within his own sphere. I mean, it's clear from the word of God. Honor thy father and thy mother. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Yes, but that's within the family. It doesn't give him license thereby to exercise some authority in the church or in the state just by virtue of being a father. I'm not saying that we don't have pastors or elders in the church that are also fathers. I'm just saying that it's not by virtue of them being a father that they may exercise authority in the church. And this is the teaching of our text this morning. When we read, it does not appertain unto thee, King Isaiah, to offer incense unto the Lord. That's the place for the priests. One might argue, yes, but you see, what if your intentions are good? What if, indeed, let's look at King Isaiah. Let's say that King Isaiah had good intentions. He just wanted to exercise piety. He wanted to express uh, devotion, his devotion to the Lord. And that's why he went in the temple to offer incense unto the Lord. What's wrong with that? <laughs> What's wrong with it is that that good intention is not governed by the word of God. You see, even the best of intentions, even pious intentions, are wickedness if they are not governed by the word of God. And therefore, the king by the priest here is both justly resisted and also punished with his leprosy. And so, again, even if the fathers in these churches have good intentions and, and intentions of devotion and piety, when they want to administer the sacraments of the Lord, Still, it is wickedness because such a thing is not governed by the word of God. And they cannot justify 
this transgression by their sincerity or by their good intentions, just as King Isaiah could not do so. And that these fathers, you see, are committing the same sin, the sin of the same kind or type as King Isaiah transgressed that we read of in our text this morning. Let us turn now to the second head, and that is the second argument from the priest to King Isaiah. They say to him, Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Thou hast trespassed. And again, as we read in verse 16, the king has transgressed. We should not think lightly of this sin of King Isaiah. And isn't it interesting to know, again, that the king actually didn't even go through with it, did he? This is called a transgression, but the king never even got so far as to actually offer the incense unto the Lord. And yet still, it is a grievous transgression, even his purpose to do so, even to be a trespasser in the temple of God when he was not commanded to be there. And so, I say we must not make light of this sin. We should see the seriousness and the severity of this sin. King Uzziah learned, did he not, of the seriousness and the severity of his transgression? For as we read again in verse 20, the Lord had smitten him, and he was a leper unto the day of his death, and his leprosy followed him, as it were, even into the grave. Let us then not make light of this sin. Consider also the words that we find in the scripture. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, those words are familiar to us, aren't they? But do we remember where they are, where we find these words in the scripture? These words are found in the second commandment of the Decalogue. The second commandment, which pertains to how we should worship the Lord, the manner in which we should worship the Lord. For in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it speaks about the object, as it were, of our worship. Who are we going to worship? But the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and later on, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. The second commandment has to do with the manner of our worship, the way in which we worship the Lord. And it is in that context, in the second commandment, that we read, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. It seems as if the Lord has a particular zeal for his worship, for the sanctity of his worship, for the holiness of his worship that must be revered. King Isaiah learned that, and also the sons of Aaron learned that. As we read of another account in the word of God, which is very similar to our passage here with King Uzziah, for it also has to do, interestingly, with the offering up of incense unto the Lord. And in this case, it's not the king or the sons of the king, but it's even the sons of Aaron. See how zealous the Lord God is in the sanctity of his worship. We read in Leviticus chapter 10, 
And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, his censer, remember that's the same word that we read of King Uzziah, he had the censer there with him as he was at the altar of incense, ready to go. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they took both of them a censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Strange fire. That's what that means. Strange fire. That is, it is not fire taken from a place the Lord commanded them. It's strange in that it was a fire taken from a place where the Lord had not commanded them. And so what happens to these young men? There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. They died. We might read the account of King Isaiah and say well, the Lord was particularly merciful <coughs> because he did not die, but was a leper. These men paid for it dearly with their lives. But what do we read as we continue in this 10th chapter of Leviticus? It says in verse 3, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. The Lord says, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So again, the Lord is zealous for his worship. We should be reverential in our worship. We should be retrospect. We should not be uh, silly or lighthearted. When we come to the worship of God, it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. I think of in our own family worship. You know, it's often difficult for children to change gears and say, oh, now it's time for family worship. And they're still bouncing around and giggling. And you sit them on the couch and you say, okay, it's time to be serious. It's time to be serious. We're going to worship the Lord now. You have to change your, your attitude, your mind. It's time to be serious. You see... The worship of the Lord is, a, is, in one respect, a fearful thing because of who we are worshiping. He is a fearful God, a dreadful God. And as believers, we should not diminish that reverence and that fear of God because that's who the Lord is. I think of, in respect to uh, fear and worship, I thought of this example from a Scottish covenanter martyr, Donald Cargill. When he was mounting the scaffolding for his martyrdom, he had a few words to say. And this is what he says. He says, I go up this ladder, this ladder that led to the scaffolding of his death. He says, I go up this ladder with less fear, confusion, or perturbation of mind than I ever entered a pulpit to preach. You see, that is the attitude we should have about our worship for the Lord. And in those days, uh, it was more common, especially in, in, the, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, that in the architecture you would have the pulpits raised as if to emphasize the point this worship is focused on the primacy of the word of God. And so it wasn't uncommon to have some steps or ladder leading up to the pulpit. And it's interesting that Cargill here is making a comparison 
between the steps that lead up to the pulpit and the steps that lead up to the scaffold where he'll be hanged to death. And again, he was more fearful of mounting up to preach the word of God than he was to face his own death. Thirdly, our third head, we see this third argument from the priests. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Neither shall it be for thine honor. This is also an interesting expression. It's actually a figure of speech, what we call meiosis. That is, that there's a lot here more than what is expressed. And I think of it as an understatement. The priests are still giving reverence unto Isaiah. After all, he is their king. And so they, they take this language in deference to the king, and they say, neither shall be for thine honor from the Lord God if you do this thing. What they're really saying, more literally, is that this will be to your dishonor, O king. This will be to your great dishonor to do this thing. And there is an implication here that if you do this thing, it will be a great peril. But it's interesting how they word it, say, neither will this provide any honor from the Lord for you, king. See how they're trying to persuade him, persuade him from doing this thing. And so, again, we must understand this principle from the word of God that no sin, no matter how highly respected or regarded it may be of men, can bring us honor. That's not how we get honor. We should not seek honor in the wrong places or by the wrong means. We should learn from King Isaiah's example. See, honor comes from an integrity of life. And where does an integrity of life come from? It comes from an obedience, from an obedience to the Lord and keeping his commandments. Comes from a saving faith and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where honor comes from. Honor is not something that we seek in itself directly. We shouldn't think of honor that way. We should think of it as it's more of a more of a side effect. It's a result of other things. If we are diligent in our duties before the Lord and we wholeheartedly pursue those things, if we are about our Heavenly Father's business, as it were, and we are faithful to the Lord in pursuing our callings, whatever it may be, and we're all given a a great diversity of callings, whatever your calling is, you should seek it with your whole heart and with diligence. You should be about your duty before God. And then... If you are faithful to the Lord in doing these things, then he will bring honor. But let the Lord take care of that. Let that be his business. We don't have to think about that. Our focus should just be on our duty. Our focus should be on how can we be faithful in our current callings in this life. That's where our focus should be. And so the king learned grievously this lesson. And I'll just end on this thought. Perhaps the Lord in his mercy to this king 
by smiting him with leprosy, but the king's still living on him for several years. For again, we read in the opening verse, or rather in uh, in the third verse of this chapter, that the king reigned for 52 years. So it seems like the king had a long time as he lived in this, this uh, what our translation here calls a several house, this house that was set apart for the king's dwelling because now he was a leper. Perhaps the Lord did it this way to give the king time to reflect upon his sin and time to repent. And though the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, never healed him from his leprosy, perhaps, I say, perhaps the Lord was merciful to this king so that he had many years to reflect upon his sin and to turn to the Lord. May we also then turn to the Lord and may we forsake any occasion of usurping the authority in another sphere that does not belong to us, nor should we violate the purity of the worship of God. Let us pray. O blessed eternal one, heavenly God, Heavenly Father, we do praise you for who you are and all the wonderful things you have done. We praise you, O Lord, that you are pleased to govern this world even through the folly of men, that you have delegated a limited authority to them in all the various spheres in the society of men. Pray, O Lord, help us then if we be found in those places of authority, whether it be in the family or the church or the state. May we serve you, O God, with fear and trembling. May we kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and we perish in the way when his anger be kindled but a little. Hear us now and be with us in this remaining time of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.